Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as it stands, nine provinces and territories have already signed deals with Ottawa on a $30 billion five-year childcare plan where fees would be cut down to about 10 bucks a day. Why is Ontario dragging their heels? We'll talk about that. We also discussed this week in Canadian politics with Muhammad Ali, senior consultant with Crestview Strategies, and the Ontario government is sending recruiters to high schools to try to promote careers in the trades. Why do we continue to have a trade shortage? And is this going to fix it? It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about childcare and daycare. Uh, we know that uh, just after the federal election, the province of Alberta signed on to the national uh, daycare program. That, uh, that's what, eight provinces now. Ontario is not one of them. And apparently they started or restarted negotiations yesterday. But in the meantime, many Ontario families are shelling out thousands of dollars per month on child care costs. And the province wants to see a more affordable model. Global's Tina Drajani has some details for us. Obviously, we hope to land a deal that is fair. And Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the sooner that happens, the better. For many families, childcare costs eat up a huge chunk of the monthly budget. And for others, the price is so out of reach that one parent leaves the workforce. Most often, it's moms. Costs for childcare rose very sharply, over 40% above the national average under the former Liberal government. And we think families need relief. As it stands, nine provinces and territories have already signed deals with Ottawa on a $30 billion five-year childcare plan, where fees would be cut down to an average of 10 bucks a day, in half by next year. But Lecce says what the feds have on the table right now won't bring us down to that point. So both sides will continue working to come to some kind of agreement. The Federal Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, Karina Gould, has noted recently that Ontario has failed to submit a detailed plan on how exactly it would spend federal dollars. Tina Trajani, Global News. And therein lies the frustration. Thanks for that, for that report, Tina. Because we've had both those ministers on, the federal minister and the provincial minister in charge of this, and getting very, very different stories from each side here as to where they are and where they are with the negotiations. And I use the term negotiations pretty loosely right here because it doesn't sound like they're really close on a lot of these issues. In the meantime, uh, parents in Ontario are saying, look it, let's go. we got to get something done here. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Kerry McQuaig. Kerry is a fellow at the Atkinson Centre at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at uh, the University of Toronto. Uh, Carrie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Not at all. What's the logjam here as you see it? I mean, I, I think a lot of people, you know, when they saw Alberta sign on a little ago and said, look, we, we already know that there's a rather acrimonious relationship between Jason Kenney and, and Justin Trudeau, but they seem to put that aside and sign the deal. Why can't we get this done in Ontario? Well, Ontario's position is that it doesn't have enough money. Um, but Ontario is getting the same per capita amount as every other province and territory uh, um, is getting. And it's, uh, you know, $10.2 billion is on the t- table. And that money needs to accomplish three things. It needs to create more spaces and it needs to bring fees down so that parents can afford to use these spaces. And it needs to find enough money to pay a workforce so that it they can attract and keep educators in the um, in the, the system. And those amounts are known. We know how much it costs to build a space. We know how much it'll take to get fees down. We know how much we should be paying um, our early childhood e- educators. Um, it's a matter of assigning the numbers so that they add up to 10.2 uh, uh, 10.2 bi- billion, you know, so these are calculations any high school student should be able to make. And what the federal government has said to Ontario is, okay, this is the, the, the money, you divide it the way that you see best and come, you know, come to the table and let's t- talk about it. 
And instead, it appears that Mr. Ford and co have preferred to um, carry on their negotiations in the media uh, rather than at the uh, FPT table. And, and I'm, I'm trying to make some sense of, of the arguments here. You know, we, we talked to Minister Lecce about this a little while ago, and they, you know, he was suggesting that, you know, we have 38% of the uh, potential kids in this, so we should get the money. And, and I talked to Minister Karina Gould about that last week on the show, and she says that's what they're getting, to the penny, exactly what they're wanting, that percentage. And now they seem to want more. Uh, it, it's, it, was, it was a deal that was good enough for, for well, eight other provinces right now. Uh, is is, the, well, is there it, an, an argument here about the numbers here, Carrie? No, I mean, what uh, Ontario has, has argued is we have 37% of the population, so we should get 37% of the money, but we don't have 37% of the kids, right? Uh, you know, uh, unlike other other provinces, we don't have a, you know, a big zero to five uh, uh, population, but we are getting the same amount of money as every other province has got per child. So that argument is off the, the t- table. Before the uh, uh, Mr. Leche and Co were saying, well, we weren't getting our share because if you divide, if, you know, whatever way you um, d- divide it, when you put Ontario into the into the thirty billion, we're not getting our share. Well, what they didn't take into account is there's two point five billion of that thirty billion that also go to First Nations, uh, you know, which have been horribly underserved by early learning and childcare services. So, you know, thank goodness that they are getting their their share. So Ontario is getting what everybody else is is getting. Now, Ontario does have one uh, challenge is that we have the most expensive childcare fees for parents in the in the country. So a lot of that money is going to have to go into making childcare affordable. So there, that will mean that there will be trade-offs in other areas. Maybe we won't have as many spaces, new spaces as we'd like, or maybe it'll take time to get wages for um, childcare uh, staff up to the level that they that they sh- uh, should be. But you know, this is a matter of moving the money around, right, and coming to some uh, c- compromises. Because in the meantime, as you say, Ontario mothers unlike mothers in other jurisdictions that have decent childcare and have signed deals are back at work where Ontario moms are not. And that's really costing us in terms of what that means for family budgets. Well, and that's the frustration I think a lot of us are feeling, isn't it, Carrie? I mean, we know that the economic recovery uh, that we were talking about, uh, you know, post-pandemic, and we're still not post-pandemic, but we're hopefully inching that way. It, it depends on getting women back in the workforce. And, uh, you know, it's not going as smoothly as we thought. And and the lack of daycare and affordable daycare has got to be one of the problems here. You'd think there'd be a sense of urgency here. So I think we got a bit of a technical problem here with Carrie, so we're going to try to uh, reconnect with her in just a couple of seconds. A very important discussion to have here. And, and you know, last week when we, we had both ministers on, we started talking about the ramifications of this. And, and I really don't want to see them start to play politics here. And I guess, you know, when, the, when you've got one party in, one, in power in one part of the province and then you've got the federal government with a different party, maybe there should be. Uh, you expect some, some, some disagreements about that on philosophical levels. But other people have done exactly the same thing. They have sat down and decided, you know what, the greater good here is for us to find a deal and make a deal. And and like I say, I, I go back to the Alberta example. Uh, you know, Jason Kenney and Justin Trudeau are not buddies by any stretch of the imagination. There's a lot of acrimony in that relationship. 
uh, and we can argue whether or not it's it's legitimate or not, but they signed the deal because they said that that's what our Alberta families need. We need it. Uh, I think we have uh, we have Carrie back now. Yes, I'm sorry. Well, it's it's working remotely, Carrie. This happens. Not to worry. Not a problem at all. The point I was making, though, just before you you got disconnected, uh, was you know, we know that the economic recovery is not going as smoothly as possible, and part of that, as you mentioned, is because a lot of those women are not going to be able to get back into the workforce until this is resolved, and there are daycare spaces. Where's the sense of urgency on, uh, on the part of the provincial government here? Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that Mr. Ford and Mr. Lecce and others understand that this has to get done quickly. Well, it, it does. And when you look at, um, you know, we noted that there are four holdouts. Uh, the Northwest Territories just said, said today that they expect to have a deal by the end of this, of the, this month. Um, and so does the uh, so does New Brunswick. Nunavut has some pretty unique issues because of the um, the high cost of building facilities in the yeah. in the in the far, far north. Ontario doesn't have any excuses. Ontario is well set to launch a really good deal where they could have spaces online quickly, lower fees fast. And already we have in. Saskatchewan, Quebec, Alberta, Nova Scotia. Parents are already feeling the effects of of, of this per, um, of this per program. They, you know, their fees are already coming down. The wages of their childcare staff are already going up. And right now, we've got staff leaving the field in droves. One because their centers can't reopen uh, because of um, because of, of hot spots in the in the p- pandemic. And on the other side, they've lost they've lost uh, parents because they're not at work, you know. So this is like a real chicken and the egg thing that we've put parents and childcare providers in, um, in into that government has to st- uh, step in. And the fact that it has the resources to do it, um, and it's uh, and it's sitting on the on the on the sidelines like it's being jilted. Uh, is, uh, you know, it's really tragic. Families are desperate um, and there's relief in, in, in sight and Ford is, in, you know, and Ford and Leachy, quite frankly, are playing silly buggers. Carrie, there's another element to this that I, I was kind of astounded by that Minister Lecce brought up the other day. Uh, he, he suggested, well, the federal government's not taking into consideration the fact that we in Ontario have full-day kindergarten and that should be factored in. Uh, is he suggesting that, that the federal money should pay for full-day kindergarten in Ontario? Is that what he's leaning towards here, that, that, that he wants funding for that as well? That's an education responsibility. Right. Well, I mean, there, there's no doubt that, ki- that kindergarten provides ch- child care. You know, certainly the pandemic sure. proved that to, to, to us. But nevertheless, the, the, the deal is that you keep your funding in the system, in the system, right? And the feds were going to top that up in order to deal with affordability and access um, issues. So again, Ontario was getting exactly what everybody else is, is getting. Other provinces have full day kindergarten for four and five year olds as well. They haven't been compensated. They were building on those on those pr- programs in order to expand access. So when, once again, you know, Mr. Ford wants a no-strings uh, deal, right? He says Quebec got that kind of a deal. Ontario wants that kind of a deal as well. Well, Quebec got that deal because it serves the majority of its kids for a fee which is less than $10 a, um, a day. If Ontario was doing that, Ontario would get the same deal as well. You know, they're running out of, they're really running out of excuse, excuses. And I think 
you know, parents are getting very, fr very frustrated. Well, and with justification, I can understand exactly. I hear from them. I'm sure you certainly do too on a daily basis. Uh, people saying, what's the, what's the deal here? What's the holdup in a situation like this? Uh, the other element to this too is, is my understanding is, is that the, the part of the deal was uh, each province had to sit down and say, okay, here's our game plan. Here's what we're going to do with the money and where it's going to be allocated. Uh, Minister Gould told us last week, Ontario has not submitted anything. Now they say, oh, we gave them some of that information year, months ago before the federal election. Uh, well, uh, there doesn't seem to be anybody to confirm that. Uh, it's, if you haven't even done the homework here, Carrie, how can you actually sit down and get a deal cut? Well, so far, any um, correspondence between uh, coming out of Queen's Park to the federal government has been more along the lines of complaints. You know, that it's not enough money. You know, what we've done before hasn't been, been recognized. It hasn't been a plan. And, and as I was saying, What's supposed to be in these plans is how many more spaces are you going to build? How fast can you get fees down to an average of $10 a day? And what are you going to do to ensure that you actually have a workforce that can staff these, these new uh, uh, spaces? And Ontario well knows how much each one of those categories cost. Um, so, you know, put the numbers down, take them to the uh, take them to Ottawa, sit down with, with Ottawa and determine, you know, exactly and let, let Ontario families know what's coming and when. The other element, too, that you heard the Premier uh, talking about the other day is he says, uh, well, this seems like it's only a five-year deal, then what? Uh, it, which seems to me to be, it's, it's like they're trying to find points here to try to substantiate the fact that they're dragging their heels. No other province has even brought this up. I mean, that's that's the way policies are written, uh, that there's going to be a reevaluation after five years. It, it makes sense. Uh, but, but all of a sudden, it's, it's a sore point for the province of Ontario when it wasn't for Alberta, Saskatchewan, or Quebec, or anybody else that signed on. Well, and I mean, one of the um, the commitments that the federal government made prior to the election, during the election, and after the election, was that that in by twenty twenty three, daycare legislation will be ta will be tabled, and included in that uh, legislation will be guarantees for ongoing funding. So Ontario's concern that it may be holding the bag for this big new childcare program is invalid. Again, there is going to be legislation um, which will uh, ensure provinces and, and territories that there is ongoing funding to support the um, expansion that uh, that they put in that they have put in, in in place. And although it's true that you know a new government may come along and try to take that away, but I think that once. Um, parents across Canada uh, really see what a difference having affordable childcare makes in their lives. I don't think any government would dare to make those changes. And Mr. Ford probably knows this because as you recall, one of the first things he tried to, to do when he took office was to get rid of full day kindergarten, yeah. right? And he heard pretty quickly from families that no, no way, right? Uh, so I, I think he should, uh, he should trust uh, his constituents that they won't let the, any federal government back down on this once it's in place. We'll have to leave it there for now. We're just uh, about out of time, but uh, certainly more discussion to come on this and, and hopefully some progress on this uh, sooner than later. Uh, Carrie, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, and sorry about the glitches. Not a problem. Not a problem. We will soldier on. Thanks, uh, Carrie McQuaig.
uh, with the Atkinson Center at the Ontario Institute of Studies at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, for the first time since the federal election back in September, uh, members of Parliament were back in the House of Commons yesterday, opening up the very first question period of Canada's 44th Parliament. And as Global's Michael Couture explains, well, it didn't take long for them to get the gloves off and go at it. The Conservative caucus presented Aaron O'Toole with a hockey jersey Wednesday morning, setting the tone for another session of full contact question period. The speech from the throne mentioned inflation once. Shameful. Just once, Mr. Speaker. So is the Prime Minister having trouble understanding the concerns of Canadian families, or does he just not care? That economic attack was repeated over and over again, and the Prime Minister pushed back with a familiar line. The member opposite talked about families. That's exactly why we're moving forward with $10 a day childcare right across the country. It all played out with a full House of Commons, something we haven't seen in 20 months. So, uh, the raucous display, of course, as you might have expected yesterday, and a lot of partisan uh, sniping going back and forth. That's kind of business as usual, right? Uh, but what is going to happen here? And uh, can they set aside some of the other, uh, shall we say, sideshow items uh, such as Aaron O'Toole's uh, leadership and, and a number of other things. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, uh, Muhammad Ali. Muhammad, of course, is a senior consultant for Crestview Strategies. Uh, Muhammad, great to have you back with us uh, on the day after they got rolling again. Uh, we watched uh, to see exactly what was going on with Mr. O'Toole and the Prime Minister and everybody else. What, what were your impressions for day one? Uh, nothing too uh, surprising, to be honest. I, I figured the, the Conservatives, particularly Aaron O'Toole, would come out swinging hard. Um, you know, there's been a big lull, you know, we're two months after the election. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is fighting for his leadership. So he needed to demonstrate some serious uh, fight and command of the of his caucus and on the message that they want to tackle and hold the government to account, which is, as we've heard in question periods, around inflation, the economy, the cost of living, affordability. These are pocketbook-oriented uh, thematic kind of questions and and argument that the Conservatives are going to make, and that's what will probably set the tone for the next uh, few weeks before we head to the Christmas break. Can they set the, the differences aside? I, I, I mean, I know some of the pundits were saying, well, of course Mr. O'Toole is going to come out like this, because uh, he, he wants to change the channel. He doesn't want to talk about the challenges to his leadership and, and Senator Batters and, the, and this a pet petition where the, we're told is still circulating there. Uh, and I'm sure that behind closed doors, at least, Mohammed, you know, the, the plea went out there, look, we have to show unity here. Uh, like you say, the hockey uh, jersey, uh, he's our captain. Uh, apparently, they started chanting his name after his impassioned speech to the caucus members. Uh, is, is that false bravado, or can have they put this behind them now and just say, okay, all tools are guy? Well, there's two things. I think one is uh, he has pretty good relations with a number of folks in caucus. I think, sure, some of them were still disgruntled with how the performance in the election went, but... I think there is a general sense of, you know, they do, gen- I think, like Aaron O'Toole. So they're rallying around the leader. They know that, that there's a lot of knives out for him, but that can also disrupt the party. So I think they want to get through this uh, pre-holiday period, uh, in question period, try to show some strength, try to show some stability, and then go into the new year with uh, with with kind of more clarity of where where can they move forward on because I think a number of caucus members in the conservative side don't want to go through the same um, recycling of, of a leader going to the leadership review because that doesn't put them in, the, in a position of continuity and stability or a government waiting sort of 
dynamic that they want to display to Canadians because, you know, there there are going to be questions. I mean, they still have the the post-election report to come out uh, that's supposed to come out in December. Uh, but the other thing that's really important is the base. The base is what is going to determine whether Aaron O'Toole stays in the leadership role or not. And if he can demonstrate the strength and stability, that will make it easier for him to convince uh, members that to give him another shot uh, at trying to defeat the Liberals. I guess one of the other elements to this, too, and I think you talked about this with us last week, is even if for those people that are still disgruntled within the caucus, uh, who's plan B? It's not as if they can say, okay, we're dumping him because we want this person. Uh, nobody's stepping forward and nobody's even mentioning any other names. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to be disgruntled and say, well, we're not pleased with the outcome of the election. That's understandable. But, you know, in the past, there were there were people in the uh, in the you know, in, in the wings that would say, well, maybe I'll, I'll take a run at this. And that's just, that's not happening within the Conservative caucus, is it? No, it's not. And I think there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we are, I think people are exhausted in the pandemic. Uh, they see how nasty it's gone and gotten. So it's not very enticing to bring in star candidates to run for, for leadership, you know, maybe give up a very lucrative career that they're in or to put their family through it. You know, that it asks, it's quite a bit. And it's just gone worse and worse over the years with, I think, through social media and such. But to your point, you know, there there's also no one natural that could uh, be seen as someone who'd be easy to tackle and defeat uh, Justin Trudeau in the next election. Whether, you know, what, what that, who that looks like, is it someone within the caucus, is that someone outside of it from a provincial? It's unclear right now. And I think that also helps uh, Aaron O'Toole saying, look, I am your strongest option. Stick with me and let's let's try and let's try this again. That's that's going to be his message, and I think caucus members generally are, are aligned on that. Until things falter again, if they do, then you'll probably see more knives out and probably more calls for a leadership change. I want to go to the other side of the house if I could for a second here, because there's something else that's going on that uh, I, I I'm wondering if there's something brewing here, and and it has to do with with the liberals and and, and leadership. Uh, we know that uh, that Justin Trudeau is not the most popular leader the party's had in the last little while. As a matter of fact, I think the Leger poll that was released last week said something like 48% of the Canadians thought he should step down before the next election, whenever that's going to be. Uh, I know that there were some disgruntled voices even within the Liberal caucus about Mr. Trudeau's leadership in, uh, over the last couple of years. Now we're starting to hear stories about some people that are, well, kind of kicking the tires and, and testing the waters about running for the leadership. At the top of that list, of course, is Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, she's got a biography coming out. We're told that she's uh, uh, getting a little cozy with some of the backbenchers now, and apparently that's not something she did much of in the past. Uh, that's a pretty good way to garner support. Uh, I don't know if there are some people within the party that think she might be the heir apparent uh, when the prime minister steps down, but uh, apparently Melanie Jolie is also testing the waters. Uh, minister Champagne, uh, Mark Carney's name keeps coming up. The question, I guess, here is, uh, the Prime Minister said he's not going anywhere. As a matter of fact, last week, as you and I talked about, he said he was going to plan to lead the Liberals into the next election, whenever that's going to be. Uh, is there a possibility here of, of 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 some rifts developing within the party if, if this continues, where people are blatantly now talking about leadership, while the other guy who's still the leader and still the Prime Minister is saying, I'm not going anywhere? You know, I don't I don't see this kind of like a Cretchen Martin situation. There isn't like some open civil war or... Uh, you know, political rivals like Christopher Freeland is very much in the prime minister's inner team. Uh, she has a very strong influence on decisions made, uh, direction of government and such. So 
uh, and he leans heavily on her. So I, there's not this sort of natural person who like, okay, like that is the next person how we saw with Craig Sham Martin. Now, there, you know, some of these individuals have long been uh, tossing their names around internally as future leadership contenders. So you mentioned Melanie Jolie, Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, there's a Nabi Baines out there. You know, there's, and there could be others from a provincial realm as well that may want to put their name out there. Um, but I don't see that, that this is going to be festering to a point of uh, open hostility internally of, of the prime minister now facing internal rivals to, to take him down. and what Because most of the people that want, for example, Christian Freeland to take over are also the people still running the show for the prime minister. And they're very close to the prime minister. So it's, it's not a very um, clear cut in the sense of what we saw in the Kretchen Martin days. But to say that, you know, he may have considerations a year or two years from now um, when he's probably achieved some of his key legacy uh, accomplishments, then he may, may, may make a consideration for it. Um, but yeah, right now, I mean, and part of it, why he also needs to say that I am going to run the next election is also a positioning. You, you don't want to give leverage away to the opposition or to the provinces you're going to be negotiating with saying, well, do we have a lame duck prime minister now? So he has to be managing that very carefully, whether he does or doesn't uh, want to run in the next election. And, and that's a typical political ploy, isn't it? I mean, you say you're going to stay right up until the time you say you're leaving. Uh, you you exactly. just do that. There's a political advantage. And your point's well taken uh, about Martin and Kretchen. Uh, they weren't friends. I mean, I, I think you know, Jean Kretchen as the prime minister understood that he needed Paul Martin as a finance minister, and and so there was a an uneasy alliance there, but they were never buddy buddies, and uh, you know, and I think that probably made that situation worse than it was, uh, and and as you say, probably well, it did. It split the party up really, and and ultimately they lost the uh, election. I mean, Martin did survive one minority government, but not too much long after that, and then ten years into the penalty box after that for for uh, the Stephen Harper time. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, in the next little while, and and I, obviously, as you mentioned, the, the 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 comments that the prime minister himself is going to make, I guess, are going to determine what path that's going to take. Yeah, it it really will determine what path that moves forward. I mean, people will continue to maybe mobilize some uh, key organizers and such. You know, that's that's nothing surprising that happens in any party where people are trying to hedge their bets for the future. Um, you know, people will want to incorporate others into their offices saying, you know, well, you're going to be part of my core team. So there'll be a, a bit of that. And, and you saw, you know, the 2021 election, uh, you know, Melanie Jolie had, was a strong organizer in Quebec. So that's always a, a key thing that one needs, uh, you know, people like Anabdi an Baines who can bring really mobilize in the greater Toronto area and amongst uh, the South Asian community. So, you know, there are going to be people who have uh, defined infrastructure in place to, put a leadership competitive leadership bit forward and there's also people who will be a you know quote-unquote star or darling of of public uh, interest such as a Christopher Friedland or Mark Carney that will look to build strong relations with some of these people so that they are their backers or you know they can help you know or like be the kingmaker so to speak um, so you it'll be interesting what happens over the next few years and a part of it has to be driven on um, how the government is doing, uh, what's the prime minister's thoughts on his future, and, and what does he accomplish in this mandate? Well, let's talk about uh, what he's doing in that mandate and, and the agenda that he's put forward. Uh, government House Leader Mark Holland uh, mentioned earlier this week that uh, they wanted to get two or three wins under their belt before Christmas. Well, that doesn't give them a whole lot of time because they're going to break for Christmas break in just a couple of weeks. 
Uh, are, are there some some low hanging fruit items here? Uh, I, I know they talked about the conversion therapy bill, uh, uh, paid sick days, things of this nature. Can they do something like that in, in such a short period of time to to try to swing momentum their way? Yeah, they definitely can. Um, they're procedural wise, they can do it. Uh, now they have to ensure that they have the support of at least one of the party to make sure that goes through relatively smoothly. You know, I see the the new COVID benefits that uh, the government table legislation yesterday that now incorporates a cultural sector as well. That the Bloc Québécois is now full in support of that piece of legislation. The NDP aren't. The Conservatives are probably going to support it because they believe in continuous support for the businesses. So that's one that should most likely get through the House and then pass before Christmas. Uh, there's going to be the pay sick days and the uh, legislation to protect healthcare workers from harassment at hospitals and other health care uh, spaces. That one is a pretty well, uh, I think everyone generally supports the idea of, of protecting healthcare workers, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Uh, we need to continue to do that. So I think those are some of the low-hanging fruits that you can see pass relatively quickly. But at the end of the day, as long as you have one party that agrees, which for all intents and purposes, they do probably have one party, like the NDP or the Bloc Québécois or the Conservatives for something, um, that was part of the negotiation that they did prior to the throne speech being tabled um, a couple of days ago. And that's what Jagmeet Singh told us, basically. Look, there is no coalition and there won't be one. Uh, it's going to be done on an ad hoc basis, different pieces of legislation. Yeah, we're either for it or against it. Uh, but you already, as you mentioned, we already saw part of that, too, with the benefits package for COVID, uh, where they've already asked for that to get bumped up a little bit. And apparently Finance Minister Freeland said, yeah, we can do that. So there's there's dialogue happening there already, isn't there? Yeah, there is dialogue happening, and that's, that's the nature of it. Also, you know, we have to remember that people like Jagmeet Singh have to uh, be careful and not just being the the willing or un or or partner that props up uh, the government all the time, right? He needs to find himself differently, that he is actually making a difference, whether he believes it or not. Um, That's always important for any political party. So, you know, he has to kind of put out some of that political rhetoric out there. But for all intents and purposes, the priorities laid out early were, were designed so that they can get quick action and support from at least one opposition party, and that was likely the NDP, but you're probably at the Bloc Québécois supporting much of that as well. So so those things could possibly get done, and, and uh, whether or not they're going to pass through Parliament, I mean, some of these things can be done with a stroke of a pen and try to get some of that, that done. The, the, the other items that they talked about there in the speech from the throne, uh, addressing things like housing and, and affordability and things of this nature, uh, are, are that's that's going to take a little bit more, I guess, you know, rolling the rock uphill to try to get some of those things done because there's not, not too much in the way of detail. But I would think also, uh, just before you joined us, we were talking about the, the negotiations between Ontario and the federal government with the child care program. Uh, that could be another win. I mean, getting Ontario on side like that would be a, a big plus for the government too. It definitely would be. I mean, they got Jason Kenney on board, and that's a pretty yeah. big win in my opinion. So uh, the, I think the pressure is fully on Doug Ford. He's coming to, I mean, he's an election year, and in the new year, then more Ontarians are going to be focused on that. Uh, you're going to hear mayors who are going to be more adamant about this. You're going to hear businesses more adamant about this. Obviously, the federal government will probably be more adamant on it. So the pressure will be on him to sign a deal uh, at some point for child care spaces. Uh, for his own re-election bid that opposition parties will jump on it for, and they already are. So that is going to be a big one once he completes uh, all the child care agreements uh, with all the provinces and territories um, and, and a major legacy item for him that he can 
hang his hat on. Yeah, that's interesting to look at it from that perspective. I mean, I, we're looking at saying, yeah, the government needs to get them on side because they want as many people right across the country to be covered by this. Uh, but first week of June, there's a provincial election here. And uh, as you say, the, I mean, let's face it, the, the, the premier's already started electioneering here with some of his announcements about funding for highways and things of this nature. That's all election stuff. Uh, but, you know, if he goes into the new year without a deal, uh, as you say, Mayor Tory in Toronto, uh, here in Hamilton, uh, the mayors here and, and the city council are saying, look, let's cut our own deal. Then there's going to be a pressure from both within the province and without uh, outside of the province to try to get something done here. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there's even some municipalities. I know there's some around the Ottawa area that are giving money back to parents living in their communities as like for, for child care because the, the pressure is so high and they want to help parents get going and, and to help them out and to, to get back to work. Um, you know, the, 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 the premier needs to kind of at some point come to realization that there's a fair deal on the table and he needs to take it. Um, you know, there's only so much posturing he can do before uh, before it just becomes negative for him, and, and it just tarnishes his uh, ability to repair his image from the pandemic response, and 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 to show that he's ready to lead another government um, in June or, or, or earlier if he called an early election. So, um, the the federal government is a bit in more of the driver's seat now. Particularly, don't have an election hanging over their head. Uh, if he can deliver on this. It's a popular program. It's a popular idea. It's good for the economy, and and it's very popular with voters right now. So uh, right now, it, this is helpful for the federal government in terms of their negotiating position. Well, it's only been one day in the parliament uh, in the question period already, and it's already starting to heat up. So it's going to be a rather raucous time over the next couple of weeks, I'm sure. Uh, Mohammed, as always, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate your input. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mohammed Ali, of course, is a senior consultant at Crestview Strategies, keeping his eye on what's going on federally and provincially in uh, the political arena. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. All the experts are also telling us that we have a shortage of skilled trades. Even when we want to get back to work, we want to start building things. We want to start building highways and bridges and roads and buildings. Uh, you can't find tradespeople. And if you've ever tried to get any work done uh, over the last year and a half, even if it's in your own little house there, the renovations or something, good luck trying to find tradespeople. Well, the Ontario government has a plan now to try to do something about that. And uh, it's, a, it's a rather innovative idea. And uh, joining us to talk about this is the uh, Minister of Labour for the province of Ontario, the Honourable Monty McNaughton joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring this up. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again. Well, great to be back with you and love talking about getting more young people into the trades. Well, i got to tell you, we've spent a lot of time talking about this on the program over the last number of years. I, I'm proud of the fact that, of course, I'm a graduate of Mohawk College. It was some years ago, but I was there. And we've done a number of programs there, and we know the work that's going on at Fanshawe over in London as well, Minister. And I know you've toured both of these facilities. And they've started already with, uh, I, I think, a great idea of partnerships with industry and community colleges to try to introduce people to the trades. But uh, as I sense the program that you're talking about now, uh, you want to go one level below that and get people interested in it before they even start going into post-secondary. Well, absolutely. I mean, look, when you think back in 2018, only 1% of high school students in Ontario went into an apprenticeship program. Uh, And yet in 2025, one in five jobs here in our province will be uh, in the skilled trade. So it's imperative that we you know, really get to young people uh, at a much earlier uh, grade and just talk about the opportunities uh, that are available in the skilled trades. Why hasn't that happened before? Well, I've been, 
you know, pretty clear that governments of all stripes over the last couple of decades have failed uh, on this front. I mean, essentially, uh, for many years now, we've told every single student in the province that if you want to be successful, you have to uh, go to university, but that's simply not the case. There's more than 140 different trades to choose from. Uh, We all know people in the trades making six figures with defined pensions and benefits. Uh, Many people that get into the trades start their own businesses and employ people. So these are great, meaningful opportunities. And we're really working at, you know, just talking about the pathways at a much uh, earlier point in uh, a kid's life. And and I think... The focus that you're talking about here about going into the schools, we'll ask you to explain this in just a couple of seconds, uh, I think is bang on because that's really where you want to engender that interest, isn't it? But it's it's got to be a multi-pronged approach, I would think, Minister. It's not just a matter of talking to the students about this. Uh, you've got to talk to teachers, I, I guess guidance counselors, people of that ilk, uh, so that they're informed about it and they can talk to students about this too. Absolutely, and parents. I mean, yeah. we're everything we're doing is to really break the stigma uh, around the skilled trades to tell Uh, educators, young people, parents, that these are great lucrative uh, careers. Uh, When you have a trade, you have a job for life. But also to, you know, create a simplified uh, apprenticeship system. I mean, I remember when I first became Minister of Labour Training and Skills Development, the bureaucrats, you know, showed me the pathways into the trades, and it was really, really confusing. So we're simplifying uh, those pathways. And then lastly, it's about getting businesses to bring on apprentices to ensure that uh, these young people into the trades get the full scope of the trade and get the hours uh, to complete their apprenticeship. Yeah, there was a rather convoluted process and and there was a previous government uh, that tried to do something about this, but I mean, I I, I was a head scratcher. I mean, basically you you had to get somebody in the trades to sponsor you before you could even apply for an apprenticeship. And that seemed to kind of be a backwards approach to this. I mean, you want to get people in there in the first place and, and get them exposed to this. And uh, and I guess the other element to this, because I know you've talked to the industry a lot about this, Minister, is uh, they're dying for people to come in here. They, they're just opening the doors and saying, how can we attract people to do this? Uh, and, and getting them interested in it at this level right now has got to be the first element so that they can start to explore this. Absolutely. I mean, one in three journey persons today is over the age of 55 in Ontario. This crisis that we've been talking about is is here uh, today. I mean, in construction alone, over the next number of years, we're going to need 100,000 workers. If we want to build these projects on time and on budget, we need uh, a workforce. But most importantly, these are jobs where people can build, you know, strong families around uh, great jobs with pensions and benefits, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, one of the things that um, I'm starting uh, immediately, we're sending Uh, 63 recruiters into every uh, high school to really target grade 9 students to compete head-on with university recruiters to talk about the pathways uh, into the trades. But furthermore, we're introducing the trades as early as kindergarten. Uh, We partner with with a group called Skills Ontario where they're sending uh, tradespeople uh, into classrooms to talk about uh, the trades And then lastly, uh, we're creating regional uh, trades fairs where parents and educators and kids uh, can go and see the different trades for themselves. And and that's such a key part to this. And I mean, you're right. I mean, you use the word stigma, and I I know that might be a strong word for some people, but it seemed to be the way things were. And 
and and maybe parents were, were were partly to blame for this because as you say I there I don't know any parent minister that doesn't want their child to to do better than they did to be more successful in in just about every aspect of their life and and so that encouragement was okay you got to go to university you got to get that degree and 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 get yourself a great paying job and they they didn't even think it's not I don't think it was they said oh you don't want to get into the trades I don't think it was even in in their on their radar uh, and that, that's going to be job one, I guess, first of all, is to get them thinking about this at an early age uh, as an option. And, you know, it's it's not to discourage academia at all. It's just that, you know, educators themselves will tell us that like a university is not for everybody. Uh, there are other people that have great skills already in some of these uh, these these trades and can make themselves a very decent living in, in, in that. But they have to be channeled in that direction. Absolutely. It's about getting to young people at a, at a much younger age to talk about the opportunities and the meaningful uh, careers available for them uh, in the trades. I mean, look, we all know uh, electricians and boilermakers and other tradespeople making more than those with PhDs. Uh, these are great careers. And um, again, it's about you know, branding them as uh, meaningful jobs and you know, really talking to parents and, and young people about the amazing opportunities. There was a time, and I'm going back a few years here, uh, where there was some concern about actually being allowed in and getting into the, not just the, the trade but the apprenticeship uh, because they, there was the accusation was that they wanted to keep the numbers down so there'd be work for everybody and they'd make all that good money. Uh, I, I don't know if that was ever valid or not, but it was a, a mindset that was out there. But in talking to a lot of the trades right now, uh, Minister, uh, I'm getting the sense that they understand, look, at, we need people. Uh, you know, we're not going to make it restrictive for you right now. If you're interested, we're going to do what we can to try to to fast track you to get you into this industry right now because the, the, we can't keep up with the work. That seems to be the message we're getting. Absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the, uh, the aging demographics in the skilled trades. I mean, one in three journey persons uh, over the age of 55. Um, I've worked really closely, and Premier Ford has with, um, you know, union leaders because um, many trade unions uh train the apprenticeships or the apprentices of the future, uh, work with our colleges uh, and industry and employers. Uh, everyone is desperate for uh, more workers. I mean, I think of uh, Ontario today, 316,000 jobs are going unfilled in our province. Thousands of those uh, are in the trades. So if we want to build back uh, a better province, uh, bigger paychecks for workers and grow our economy, we have to deal with this crisis and uh, our government spending 1.5 billion dollars over the next four years uh, to really focus on the trades and uh, just to tell young people and, and parents and educators that there's a, a great career for them. Well, not just that, but I think that the whole concept of, of, of unionism and trade work is, is, has evolved, hasn't it, over the last number of years? It's, as you mentioned, it's, it's a career uh, and it's a, a job for life. And a number of the innovative unions, and there's a lot of them, including, well, the unit comes to mind here uh, in southern Ontario, Labor's International Union, uh, not just are you a member for life or there's going to be work there, but I mean, they have scholarship programs for you. Once you start a family, uh, we can start putting money aside for your kids' education too. They, they, there's a, a much more holistic approach to this whole concept now, isn't there? Absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned Layuna. They're, they're doing a great job at getting underrepresented uh, people uh, into the trades. One of the uh, programs that we fund uh, through uh, my ministry is uh, something called Pre-Apprenticeship Program. And I remember talking to this young lady, uh, Natisha. She was actually just featured uh, in the Toronto Star. Um, she was a single mom on social assistance, had uh, two young kids. She went into a pre-apprenticeship program where she got to try the different trades for uh, 12 weeks. 
uh, she decided to uh, go into an apprenticeship program to become an iron worker. Uh, Twelve months ago, she got licensed. She became a, a journey person. She's making $44.08 an hour with a pension uh, and benefits. And when I called her to congratulate her, I mean, she was in tears. And I said, what's the most uh, exciting thing? What are you most proud of? And she said, for the first time uh, in my life, I can buy a car. And my two daughters are really proud of me. And to me, that's what keeps me motivated uh, every day. It's about these worthwhile, meaningful careers that really do change people's lives. Well, because it's running actually t- totally contrary to w- what we've heard of what the other concerns here. There are an awful lot of jobs right now that have turned into contract jobs. And I know that's a concern that you've talked about in the past, you know, where, where the, okay, you can work on the contract here, so, but you, you don't get benefits, you don't get pensions, you don't get any of that stuff. Unions are going in the total opposite direction. They're offering uh, those safety nets for people right now. Absolutely. Look, we're coming out of a global pandemic. Um, we have to build back a, a better province. Uh, uh, benefits and pensions are important, and uh, I want everyone out there to know that many of these uh, different trades uh, come with a pension and benefits, and that's uh, important. It's how we're going to build uh, stronger families and, and better communities uh, across the province. And those great employers out there that are offering you know higher salaries and uh, more benefits are also going to prosper because they're going to attract the best talent. I know your time is tight. Uh, quickly on time frame, when can you get this program started? Well, we're into schools uh, now. Um, you know, we've actually begun a number of these uh, changes, uh, but it, it's happening as we speak. We're going to get into uh, 800 high schools. Uh, we're going to be going into uh, kindergarten classes, um, uh, introduce elements of, of the skilled trades uh, in grades 1 through grade 12. But really, there's going to be a focus on grade 7 and 8 students to uh, encourage them at a younger age to make a decision uh, to pick up a career in the trades. Well, we'll be talking to the boards of education and see what kind of feedback they're going to get on this. A very innovative program, Minister. Uh, congratulations on this, and here's hoping it's uh, an overwhelming success. Uh, the, the, the recovery uh, here in this province certainly does need this, and uh, we're hoping this is going to be a big part of it. Thank you so much for the time today. Great. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Take care. That's uh, Ontario Labor Minister Monty McDutton with uh, this idea, which I think is a fabulous idea, and I'm uh, hoping it's going to work. And as the minister said, a lot of this really comes down to changing people's mindsets. And uh, I know that in, in some circles, this is not going to be necessary because people understand, uh, first of all, how unnecessary trades are. And, and you know something, maybe the pandemic has, has underscored that for an awful lot of us. You know, we, we've talked about some of the anecdotal stories about people saying, well, you know, we're home now, so we're going to get a lot more work done. Uh, you know, I want to get that deck done. I want to finish the basement now. We've got some time and a little bit more money. Uh, good luck trying to find tradespeople because they're busy. They're, they're, they're going in 16 different directions right now. We already know about the construction booms that are going on with uh, with housing and real estate in some communities. Uh, those are carpenters, electricians, different tradespeople that are working in those industries too. So there's work there. And uh, as the minister said, the money's pretty darn good. And, uh, you know, you've got some stability there. So it's it's something that may not be for everybody. Uh, it's, it's, it's offering choices and options as opposed to a one-size-fits-all for education. And, and I'm glad that, that I think we're at that point right now where we're starting to broaden that discussion. Uh, absolutely, pop people that, that, that are geared towards academia should do that. Uh, you know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, you want to be any number of those wonderful things. Yes, you've got to, to go through those channels and, and, and attain that level of education. And there are millions of great programs and millions of great universities around the world that can do that sort of thing. We get that. Uh, but we also have to talk about this. We need to build things. We need to maintain things. 
And uh, the trades have always been there. Uh, and I, I think we need to, to shine the light on that as a possible career path for some people and a likely career path for others that would pursue an opportunity like this and simply say, look at yeah, we want to go down that road and, and do the training. And uh, it's, it's something that I think is actually going to be extremely beneficial as we go forward. I mean, the number that the minister talked about here is rather daunting. If we don't fill these positions, things aren't going to get done. Things aren't going to get built. And I know that I know that you know immigration is going to be part of that. Always has been that a number of people coming into the country are going to be seeking these jobs, and that's wonderful. That's going to be part of the process, and and will continue to be, I'm sure. But we also want to make sure that people that are here uh, are, are exposed to this as well, and given the opportunities uh, to pursue jobs in the trades as well. And if you can start that conversation in elementary schools, and say, you know, this is something you might want to consider. And it's something you might actually show a propensity for. I mean, we've seen that with past generations of students, haven't we? I mean, even if you get into a high school situation and you take an automotive class or a woodworking class or something like this, and, and all of a sudden figure, hey, there's a skill there that maybe you didn't know about before. That could actually parlay itself into a nice career. But you got to have that discussion and you got to be aware of what's available. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.